Hello and welcome to the Asia Perspectives podcast from the Economist Intelligence Unit. In each episode, we examine perspectives on industry and management to better understand how the world is changing and how those changes can create opportunities and risks to be managed. My name is Jason Winsunis. I'm a senior editor with the Economist Intelligence Unit, and I'll be your host for this episode on a topic about China's introduction of a digital currency. dig into that, I'm joined by Andrew Work, who is the co-founder of the Lion Rock Institute, a free market think tank founded in Hong Kong in 2004. He's also the former executive director of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong and has worked in fintech and blockchain sectors with NextChange. Importantly for today's discussion, he recently published a report on digital currency in China That new monetary experiment is already under test in four Chinese cities, and if successful, they plan to roll out this new digital currency for wider distribution, possibly before the end of this year. So welcome, Andrew, and thank you for joining us at Asia Perspectives. Thank you for having me on. Now, you are the editor-in-chief for Harbor Times, a policy-focused publication, and the director for Lion Rock Institute. So why are you writing a report about China's central bank digital currency? Yeah, so I guess it's through uh, my original involvement with the think tank, started 16 years ago. And, you know, there's a bit of a network of people that keep in touch who are interested in, in the promotion of free markets. And one of those contacts was with the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. And they have an office here in Hong Kong. And last year, they had a visit from the Bundestag, the finance committee of the Bundestag, led by Bettina Stark-Watzinger, and they came through and they asked me to come and speak to them. And I said, what do you want me to talk about? And they said, whatever you think is important. And at the time, the European Union was in a bit of a tizzy about the announcement of Facebook Libra, Facebook's planned cryptocurrency. And I was one of the three people invited to speak to them. And I said, you shouldn't be worried about Facebook. You really should have the Chinese digital currency, the People's Bank of China's upcoming digital currency on your radar and be thinking about what that means. And we had a discussion about that. And later, the think tank came back to me and said, some of the people on the finance committee said they want more. We'd like to commission you to do a report that we'd like to circulate among the members of the Bundestag. Okay. So let's back up a little bit first. What is a cryptocurrency and how is that different from a central bank digital currency? This has been really interesting because this PBOC digital currency has been talked about for a long time because they've been doing a lot of work on it for years and years, and people have been referring to it as the upcoming PBOC cryptocurrency. But as we got more and more visibility into what it is uh, or what it will be, because it's still, I think, a work in progress, people stopped calling it a cryptocurrency because it didn't share some of the fundamental characteristics of a cryptocurrency. The cryptocurrency that's probably best known to people, if they're not deep in the space, is Bitcoin. Uh, And some of the key characteristics are things like decentralized production. Many, many people have set themselves up to mine or create Bitcoin. This digital currency is not going to be created by many people. It is going to have its creation controlled by the People's Bank of China. One of the characteristics of cryptocurrencies normally is a what we call a distributed ledger in that the records of transactions are replicated and duplicated across a whole series of nodes, which are computers located around the world. You know, anybody with the savvy can set themselves up as a node. And anybody can see the transaction record of the cryptocurrency. 
this digital currency. There will be visibility for the People's Bank of China, but not necessarily for anybody else unless the People's Bank of China gives them that visibility. Cryptocurrencies in their purest form and conception have a limit to how many will be created. Bitcoin, the original, certainly had that as its stated goal, that there would be a limit on how many Bitcoin could be produced. And that was kind of central to its concept of value. Whereas this currency will be issued by the PBOC and the PBOC can decide to create more or less at their whim, more like a normal fiat currency. So when a central bank, for lack of a better word, mints a digital currency, I guess the design could be on a blockchain or or maybe not. Do you know if China is going to rely on blockchain? It could, but in this case, from what we've seen so far, uh, it will not be on a blockchain. Part of the reason for having a blockchain is a record of authentication that anybody can see and anybody with the technological know-how can check up on. Whereas here, that's not really important from the point of view of the People's Bank of China. As long as they have visibility, they don't really need for anybody else to have their level of visibility on this or authentication. They, they will control the visibility. They will control the authentication, which is, you know, again, it's completely the opposite of the benefits of having a cryptocurrency. So that's, that's why people stopped calling it a cryptocurrency. Now we call it a digital currency or sometimes a DCEP, digital currency electronic payment. I often get into debates with a good friend of mine. He's been in the finance sector for 30-something years. He's worked at banks. He's worked at asset exchanges in the U.S., in Europe, and in Asia. So he's, he's got quite a, a wide perspective. And he's fond of bringing up this idea is that whenever we get into conversations about digital currencies, he says, you know, your money is already digital. You know, how many suitcases of cash does your employer send you as a paycheck every month? You know, he says the way money moves today is already digital. So I guess my question then is, how is a digital currency different than what we do today? What's, what's the advantage of digital cash that can't already be accomplished? Not that I'm going to change the definitions used in the entire world of finance and banking in this podcast, but I would call those digital transactions what he's thinking of. When we move money from one person to another through internet banking or PayPal, uh, you're not actually moving anything but a record of a store of value. Uh, It's a little bit different. If I hand you a $100 bill, again, it's a way of recording a transaction between us that nobody else can see because ultimately it's an IOU to a central bank. But a digital currency is different. It is not just a digital transaction or a record of, of an agreement that we made to move some money back and forth. These digital currencies, it's actually like a piece of software that has a unique identifier on it. And the People's Bank of China will be able to see each individual unit of currency and identify it. And then they will be able to take it. They will be able to delete it at will. And this is completely different from me just sending you money through internet banking or using my phone to make a payment. It's a very, very different animal. Do you think that central bank digital currencies in general, does that represent central banks taking on more of a role in maintaining the security integrity of financial systems like right down to that payment infrastructure level you know aside from what they already do with cash i mean you know what's your thought on central banks on their need of any central bank to act as a guardian of financial stability in the digital age 
at one level it does create uh, stability, depending on how you define the stability of a currency. I mean, stability of a currency is based solely on trust in people that it has value and they can use it to conduct transactions that enable them to buy food or buy clothes or pay for transportation to take them from point A to point B. When people lose that trust, then there's no stability. Everything falls apart. So a digital currency, as long as people believe that the bank behind it is sound, that the technology is sound, and that they can use it for transaction, it'll still be very stable. Now, some of the things that come along with stability of a banking system, like the ability to control illicit transactions, right? So anti-money laundering, terrorism. In China, shadow banking is a huge factor in the economy, and it's one that causes a lot of uh, concern uh, for banking regulators in China. So this will enable them to control those things much better, especially if it becomes the only currency of the land. But if you have another way of thinking about it, if you think that there needs to be flexibility in the system, then you might think that stability in the general economy and therefore the currency might be better maintained by having some looseness to it, a little bit of flexibility. I'm a big fan of Friedrich Hayek, and he talks about the information problem. And I think with this digital currency, with the PBOC having what they believe to be perfect visibility into where the currency is at all times, I think they're going to run up against the information problem where they fool themselves into thinking by knowing where everything is all the time, they can control everything all the time. And I think that will introduce a level of fragility into the system. If policymakers think they know everything and control everything, then the temptation to try and control everything will become too great. And I think that then you might aggravate the underlying trust in the whole system that could introduce instability in another way. So that actually gets to something that the American Bankers Association brought up. That's a consortium of U.S. banks. And they gave testimony to U.S. Congress on June 11th. And they were concerned that a Fed-run digital currency would put too much power in the hands of the Federal Reserve. And I quote them as saying, threaten the retail banking model because it would make the Fed a monopoly provider of currency in their view bank accounts and payment services and all that. Plus, they seemed worried that the Fed would also be able to control individual transactions, have the ability to be the de facto arbitrator of what people can and cannot buy. So you know, how realistic do you think are those concerns, either for the U.S. digital dollar or for a digital RMB? It really goes to the design of the digital currency. Could a digital currency do all those things? Yes, absolutely. Where the people in the United States are concerned about freedom and about individual freedoms and, and about government institutions having too much power, they see that as a drawback. But for the Chinese digital currency, that is the objective, and it is built into the design, the ability to control what people can and cannot buy, the ability to control who can and cannot transact. It is very much part of the design of this, that if the PBOC wanted to, they could become a retail banker and open up accounts directly with people. They have specifically said they will not do that. They do not want to eliminate the commercial banking system from China, you know, whether it's your agricultural bank or your, you know, your bank of China, they're not going anywhere. In fact, they're currently test running wallets so that their customers can use the new digital currency. The Chinese banks and major transaction platforms like WeChat Pay and Alipay, they are going to be partners in this. 
but the PBOC will be able to see everything that's going on all the time. So if you think about it in the past, if the PBOC or the Chinese authorities wanted to see what was going on with somebody's bank account at the Bank of China, the ABC, they would have to go and ask for it. They don't have to do that anymore once, if, if this digital currency takes over the domestic currency, they can see everything all the time anyways. They don't have to ask anymore. It just reduces some of the friction in their ability to see what's happening. So, you know, in, in Western countries that are thinking about digital currencies, they're going to have a long road to hoe because they're going to have to deal with all these concerns and the legal frameworks. Whereas in China, they don't really have that problem. If they want to roll it out, they're going to roll it out and they, and they are rolling it out. I think those concerns in the United States are valid, but in China, they're not concerns. They're objectives and part of the design. At the very top of your report, you gave us a really handy list of reasons why a digital RMB would be important or valuable. And we really could just go through that list and each of those and use up all our time just talking about them because each one raises an interesting question. There was something in the way you worded the introduction. A wide range of motives are attributed to the introduction of a digital currency ranging from the obvious and benign to the insidious and malignant. So what I'm curious about is who is saying these are the motives? Like, for example, who or what types of organizations think that China's digital currency is malignant or insidious? I mean, one of the things in the list that you gave was that the point of China's digital currency could be to undermine the U.S. currency hegemony. Now, that's intriguing. So let's start with that. What kind of organizations are maintaining that stance? What's, what's their evidence? And is it even possible, either from a motivational or technological perspective? To be honest, in terms of like pointing the finger at specific organizations right now, I think so few people have this on their radar that organizations haven't gotten themselves organized, for lack of a better word. They, they haven't gotten themselves organized to make official stances on this. So most of those conversations right now are unofficial. You know, they're among China watchers. They're among people that think about the nature of money and in the cryptocurrency community. If you think about the cryptocurrency community, privacy is and protecting privacy from the prying eyes of the state has been a big, perceived as a big benefit of a cryptocurrency. So they've been keeping an eye on this digital currency. But as I said, people stopped calling it a cryptocurrency because they realized the objectives and the design were completely different. Looking at some of those other things, if you, if you think about it malignant, if you think that having a centralized government that can see every transaction you make all the time, an entire record of every transaction without having to go through legal safeguards like obtaining a warrant. If you think that's a problem, then you may consider this malignant or insidious. I just finished reading Margaret Atwood's follow-up to The Handmaid's Tale, the uh, the new book, The Testaments. And she made the point in the first book and the second that, that when the authoritarian state of Gilead is created, the first thing they do is they lock down women's bank accounts and remove all financial control from the women in the society. And I mean, Margaret Atwood, she got it back then and she still gets it now. So if you think that's a problem, then you might consider this. I think in China, I don't think it'll be a problem because a lot of people there, people who have you know left China and we talk to every day in places like Hong Kong, they still have the attitude of, if you don't do anything bad, you never have to worry about the government being able to see everything that you do. So that's where people might consider it a problem. But on the flip side of it, there's an argument to be made that it will increase the ability of the government to control anti-money laundering, to stop criminal activity, to stop terrorist organizations. 
And those are all potential benefits from the flip side of, of an all-knowing, all-powerful government. Coming to the question of the U.S. currency hegemony, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that would like to see a reduction in the amount of control that the U.S. government has over the world financial system. Pindar Wong is heavily cited in the report, and he had a great term for it. And I think most, most listeners of this podcast will know that money supply gets categorized in M0, M1, M2, is the money that you see every day and is in your bank account and you use for transactions. But the big money is M3, M4 money supply that is used by major institutions from central banks to banks in the system that then pass it on to so-called normal people like us. When governments buy bonds, there's kind of this much bigger world of money supply that is referred to as M3, M4. Pindar Wong talks about the M16, which is the American military weapon of choice, but he builds that as an analogy to the U.S. weaponization of the global financial system. If you're in the America's bad books, you're going to get it through financial through the financial system, whether it's Iran, North Korea. You know, once sanctions are applied, the U.S. can use its control of the global financial system to make those sanctions hurt. So. China's, you know, in the past has tried to increase usage of the renminbi in the global system to try and weaken that U.S. currency hegemony. There have been recent moves between China, Russia, and India. They've recently signed an agreement uh, to try and use the Chinese system for uh, recording transactions called the uh, cross-border interbank payment system, and Russia signed up for that. Uh, and the idea is to weaken American dominance through institutions like the Bank of International Settlement and SWIFT. So this digital currency has been seen as a way that might be able to help China to spread the renminbi, reduce the American dominance through the, you know, the global dominance of the U.S. dollar. But I don't think it's going to work in that fashion. I, I just don't see it happening. And most of the economists I talked to for the report were the ones that led me to have that opinion. So if China, for example, is able to control payments with that sort of very granular kind of dictate, wouldn't that undermine its global acceptance? I mean, if, say, a bank like HSBC or Deutsche Bank, which has certainly had its problems with accusations of money laundering and so forth, you know, mm -hmm. wouldn't banks like that be particularly cautious about uh, a currency that they feel could simply be taken back from them at any time? Yes. Right now, you have Chinese tourists traveling the world and accommodations have been made from Sydney to Toronto to Paris, where when Chinese tourists walk in, they can use their WeChat Pay and their Alipay to make purchases. And if those systems overnight, the, the PBOC says to WeChat Pay, Alipay, you're all on the digital currency now. Everybody in China is on this digital currency. We've done the test runs. We're ready to roll it out. This is the new system. Then all of those vendors around the world are going to be told they have to get on board. But that's going to be a real problem because, again, this is not just a record of a digital transaction. This is an actual piece of software that will be going into these. And I think that will severely limit acceptability, primarily in major economies, uh, whether it's, you know, your Korea, Japan, you know, Western economies, Australia, where I think that other countries will have less ability to push back or smaller countries that border China, where they are going to be told, listen, you take this or nothing. Or if you are buying supplies from China, say for your manufacturing plant in Cambodia, you are going to start to use this currency. And let's say you're running a border town casino, right, in Laos. 
you're going to take that money. You are going to take that digital currency if that's the only game in town and you're dependent on the Chinese economy for the survival of your own economy. But you are going to seek out channels to convert that into US dollars or another currency as fast as you can, especially if you're doing something that's a little bit questionable that someday the PBOC might decide they want to crack down on. So if you've got mainland Chinese officials crossing the border to gamble, you know, someday that might get all disappear. So you may take it, but you're going to want to get out of it as quick as you can. But, you know, but for example, taking this, this question to Europe, what if you're Louis Vuitton taking this as a payment format in Paris for Chinese tourists coming in? You've really got an issue to decide technologically and legally how you're going to handle this. And especially if the European regulators look at this and say, no way are you turning that loose in our banking system. And I think that's when you'll start to see pushback. And I think that will severely restrict the acceptability of this currency outside of China. And one of the promises, as you just mentioned, is the, the anti-money laundering potential, that sort of know your customer enforcement. How achievable is that, technologically at least, without a blockchain element? I think very achievable. Since I wrote the report and it was published, there have been more announcements of, of organizations that are test running this currency. So right now it's being test run in four cities in China. One of them is uh, Xiong'an, the new district just outside of Beijing, and McDonald's and Starbucks and Subway are test running this. I don't think that's connected to their global McDonald's, Starbucks and Subway, but rather you know local franchisees. But even more recently, and after the report was published, there have been announcements that Didi, which if your listeners aren't from China, they, they call it the Chinese Uber. It's huge. It has over 500 million users. They have created a task force to work with the PBOC to test around the digital currency. And Meituan Dianping, which is a huge food service delivery company in China, again, massive all over the country. And they have just announced, I think in the last 24 hours, that they are going to be test running the digital currency as well. And again, blockchain is not really required for this type of software. Blockchain for each unit of a cryptocurrency that uses blockchain, a little bit of code is added every time so that you can identify where and when everything happened. Whereas for this, the PBOC will be able to see it all the time. So they don't need that, that blockchain technology to make this work. What about the hacking potential? I mean, part of the argument for blockchain in the first place is that it is too difficult to hack because of all the nodes. But if you're talking about a central bank digital currency, that word central is central to the thing. What are the potentials or what are the protections against hacking? Never discount the ingenuity of the criminal mind. <laughs> when it comes to technology, um, a lot of supposedly uncrackable systems have, have proven to not be thus. One of my favorite things to keep an eye on is quantum computing. And already there are people touting systems that are going to be quantum computing proof uh, because they're expecting quantum computing to be used by hackers to, to brute force the previously unhackable. But for this system, uh, the test runs are happening right now. I would fully expect the PBOC has made the security of these systems a, a paramount point of testing, but we don't have a lot of visibility on the technological specs on that yet. So I would not underestimate the strength of this system. And I would say that, you know, by the time they have this ready for full deployment, I would expect the PBOC to have it as secure as any major banking system in the world, but foolproof, eh, you know, 
I don't think the uh, the uncrackable safe or the uncrackable code has been built yet. Uh, it's you know with these things it's always just a matter of time, but I think it'll be as good as anything that is on the global stage right now in the financial sector. Now, how much do you think is reality today, and how much is still just hype when it comes to central banks embracing this sort of digital innovation? Is it really the solution for interoperability, supporting competition and innovation and safeguarding public payment infrastructures that some claim it is? You know, how far do you think we are from such a promise actually being true? I think it's fantasy and speculation and talk over beers everywhere but China. China is doing it. They've been working on this for almost a decade now. And you know, the think tanks and working groups, and they've had very smart people with tremendous resources working on this, and they're test running. And as I said, small test runs announced a few months ago, but when they start talking about implementing it through DD and Meituan Jianping, and the four biggest banks in China have created apps, they're calling them wallets, but they're essentially apps for, for use in mobile devices. This is all happening, and it's real, and they are moving ahead. I was listening to one of the more popular uh, blockchain podcasts and the former chairman of the CFTC, Giancarlo, Chris Giancarlo was talking about it and he was still, you know, talking about how in the United States they were going to have to think about their values and their history and how that worked. And I just shook my head because I mean, China is test running this thing right now. It may give China a technological advantage that other countries can't catch up to. Now, as I said earlier, I don't think that means that people will adopt this because they'll have good reasons not to. But I think the imitators will come fast and furious. The Central Bank of Cambodia just released a paper about how they would like to do a central bank currency. And if China spends a decade designing the first and maybe the best, imitators will follow quickly. I think authoritarian nations are going to like the level of control while most of the Western world is still talking about you know, whether or not it's a good idea, it will be spreading to kind of cheap knockoff versions of it will spread to countries with lesser resources, but who would very much like to have the level of control that PBOC is going to have in the near future. Now, we're recording this in the summer of 2020, which will probably go down in history as the summer of the pandemic. Yeah. So how is that going to affect the way central bank digital currencies might become more important you know is physical cash now a risk factor as as a vector you know, just recently square the payments aggregator in the u.s released a report that its customer base had mostly gone cashless which it defined as accepting 95 percent or more of transactions through credit cards on march 1st the company says eight percent of its clients were effectively cashless and then 54 days later on april 23rd the number of cashless business jumped to 31%. Now, there has certainly been disparagement of digital currency for quite some time. It's, it's not hard to find. And probably there's some in The Economist as well. And there are certainly problems with transaction times on a blockchain, for example. Mm. But is COVID-19 the inflection point? Do you see the timeline for digital currencies now having moved up or does it even matter? Because Visa already has an executive saying that central bank digital currencies are going to be a game changer. Again, I think that those are what I redefined as digital transactions. I mean, 
the money's in my account. I have to get it to you. I don't want to come and see you or touch you or, you know, no offense. But the banks and the fintech sector have been really focused on enabling digital transactions. And I think this is just giving people a lot of a kick to implement technologies that are already in place. And I think some countries will come along. I know in the Philippines, for example, a lot of companies accept digital transactions. They have a contactless payment model available, but still many customers just prefer to show up with a check or pay cash every month. And of course, now with COVID, they don't have that option anymore. So they're, you know, people are coming across the line. But again, those are digital transactions. And I think this digital currency is something different. As I said, I think in the West and uh, developed economies outside of China, people are just talking about it. But in China, this thing is moving ahead. I don't think COVID has slowed it down. Every two or three months, there are new announcements from the four cities doing a trial run, which happened right at the beginning of the COVID outbreak. And now over the last, you know, then we've had the announcement about Didi getting on board and literally in the last 24 to 48 hours, the announcement about Meituan coming on board. This thing is moving ahead in China. And this digital currency system in China, I think, will be widely deployed from the central bank to the major banks through WeChat Pay, Alipay by the end of 2020. Well, that looks like our time. Uh, Thank you, Andrew, for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Jason, uh, and to you and all your team for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening. For more on EIU research, you can visit our website, perspectives.eiu.com. To read a recent report on digital currency from the EIU, go to digitalcurrency.economist.com, where you can read more about the consumer acceptance of digital currencies. And as always, if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from the Economist Intelligence Unit, you can email us to asiaperspectives at economist.com. Thank you again for listening to Asia Perspectives from the editorial team at Economist Intelligence Unit. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. On September 15th, my colleagues at Economist Events will be hosting a webinar entitled Financing Healthcare, Searching for the Solution. The focus of that will be to explore the implications of COVID-19 for health financing. You can register for free at Financing Healthcare, all one word, financinghealthcare.economist.com.